Hello and welcome to a special City Club of Cleveland forum. It's a breakfast briefing with Elon Goldenberg of the Center for New American Security. He's been there with the center for five years and uh, before that with the State Department, uh, serving under Secretary John Kerry. And, uh, and before that, he spent some time at the Pentagon working on issues relating to Iran. Um, I'm Dan Malthrop, CEO of the City Club. Elon, it's great to have you with us. Great to be here. Um, so we're going to talk today about the um, about the Israeli elections. Um, we're going to really use that as a as a sort of launching point for a broader conversation about the region, about the Middle East, and um, and the U.S. role there, and um, and the future. But um, we're in the midst of a moment of uncertainty that Israel hasn't seen in uh, what more than a decade. I would mm -hmm. I would hazard the guess. But you tell me how you see it. Sure. Well, maybe, and I'll start with. A little bit of the play-by-play, -play, and I'll, I'll try not to be too deep in the weeds because nobody knows anything, and all of it might change tomorrow. I mean, I was just in Israel, and like that was the first theme from all these uh, journalists and experts. And Israelis have very strong opinions about things; they always want to tell you what they think. Um, these are people who spend their careers covering Israeli politics, and all of them basically were throwing their arms up in the air, going, well, "I don't know what's going to happen." Um, so that was pretty interesting in and of itself. Um, Look, what we have now is we had an election, a second election in six months, uh, just um, last week, uh, and we have basically a three-way standoff now. Um, the three-way standoff involves sort of three different people. Uh, first is uh, Prime Minister Benjamin Netanyahu. Uh, he's the head of Likud, uh, which is the right-wing party, strongest right-wing party in Israel. He's got... Um, his party, Likud, has 31 seats out of 120. Um, but if you also add all the other right-wing elements that, of parties who would naturally be in this coalition, you end up with like 55. Uh, then you've got Benny Gantz, who's the head of Blue and White, which is kind of this centrist party, and he's a former military chief of staff. Um, his party has 33 out of 120, and together his block of various parties comes up with 57. Uh, and then you've got Avigdor Lieberman, who traditionally has been more of a right-winger, um, but basically is sort of holding out and not really choosing sides at all, and he's got eight. And in many ways, he's the kingmaker. So you have these three guys kind of staring at each other. Um, Bibi's opening position is, what I really want is a right-wing government, because you know he's under indictment, or about to be under indictment. He's got legal problems. I want a right-wing government that's going to pass a law that's going to essentially make me exempt. Um, that's not going to happen because of the result of the elections. And the one thing we do know from the elections is he lost that opportunity, and for him that's a big loss. So if there's, nobody knows who the winner is, but everybody knows that Bibi Netanyahu is the loser of the elections in many ways. Um, and so now he's sort of saying, okay, well, I, I'm okay with some kind of national unity government and bringing in different parties as long as I stay prime minister so that I don't have to be indicted because that keeps him immune from, from being uh, at least uh, you know, certain things. Um, or he doesn't have to step down while he's under indictment, I guess. Then you've got uh, Gantz, who says, sure, I'm happy to sit in a national unity government. I'll take my blue and white seats. We'll come together with Likud. We'll form a government, right and left. Um, but one condition, uh, I will not sit with a prime minister who's under indictment. So Bibi and Gantz can't work together. Uh, can't do national unity. Uh, so then the question becomes, where does Lieberman go? And Lieberman says, well, I'm not going to go with the right because Lieberman is representing the Russians, uh, sort of community, which is very secular and has a lot of issues with the ultra-Orthodox who sit on the right. So Lieberman is saying, 
I will not go with the right um, because I will not sit with the ultra-Orthodox. Uh, the left includes about 12 or 13 Arab-Israeli seats. He says, I will not go with the left because I don't want to sit with the Arab-Israelis and with some of the, the far-left wingers. I will only do a national unity government. So we're stuck. Nobody can put together a government. Um, and the question becomes, who blinks first? Uh, and there are numerous iterations of this. Right now, there at least, you know, the first thing that happens is the president, Reuven Rivlin, chooses who actually sort of gets the first opportunity to form the government. Right now, between Gantz and BB, right now he's trying not to choose. He's trying to say, come together and you two figure it out uh, and come to a national unity government agreement. That's unlikely to work. And then he'll have to choose one. And that person will probably try for about four to six weeks. And if that fails, which it most likely will, somebody else will try to four to six weeks. Um, and eventually, you're either going to go to a third election or you're going to have to force a decision where one of these, one of these guys gives up on one of their core principles uh, in order to actually form a government. Uh, and the reality is I don't think we're going to a third election because there is so much pressure. The Israeli public doesn't want a third election. Anybody who is seen as... as uh, uh, sort of um, being the one whose fault it is that they go to a third election will just take a huge political hit. So they got to figure something out. So we can sort of talk through iterations if you want of what that might look like, but that's basically like where we are today. How committed is Benny Gantz and the, and the Blue and White Party to the other 22 uh, or 25 uh, parliament seats and, and the smaller parties that they represent? Mm -hmm. uh, how committed is, is he and are they to those those partners? So uh, I think Gantz's preference is the national unity government. I uh -huh. think he'd rather just go with Likud and get rid of Bibi um, uh -huh. and not necessarily go with those other partners. Those other partners involve about, you know, two different parties on the left. One is labor uh, and one is a new party that includes Ehud Barak and the old Meretz. So like labor is the left, Meretz is like the far left. <laughs> Together they're about 12 or 13 seats. Um, and you have the Arab Israelis, which, are, which is really interesting, because the Arab Israelis have never sat in an Israeli government. I mean, they, they participated and supported Yitzhak Rabin in the 90s, but they didn't actually, were, weren't formally part of the government. Um, and they've chosen to basically stay out of, of Israeli politics. Um, and the left has been happy with that because their view, because they don't want to really sit with the Arabs either. It gets very complicated. Um, but increasingly, um, the Arabs are realizing if we want to have a say in Israeli society, we need to be part of the governing. And the Israeli left is realizing we can't form coalitions in government without the Arabs. Uh, so one of the best news stories and most interesting news stories of this election has been how many seats they got, the surprise numbers that they got in this second round. And how many? Um, so they got 13. Um, so and they have more than Lieberman. Yes, many more than Lieberman. Why aren't they the kingmaker? Uh, because the right would never sit with them. Bibi spent the entire election drumming up anti-Arab anti sentiment. You know, there was all this stories. And he does this every time. He did this in, in 2015. He did it in, in uh, the previous elections. You know, you know, the Arabs are coming out in droves. I don't know if people remember that in 2015. He, he, made, he was mm -hmm. making that case. This time there was all this talk of cameras at polling stations because it's all really designed, this anti-Arab sentiment from the far right in Israel to gin up the the vote to bring out the base um, mm -hmm. with with some of these sentiments by saying like look the Arabs are going to control the country so they they only have one place to go and that's with Gantz um, for Gantz K 
can he put together a coalition that includes them? He can't because Lieberman is ideologically kind of where Bibi is in the question of, of bringing Arabs into some kind of government. So this is the question. Who does Lieberman sell out to in many ways? If Lieberman sells out to, to Gantz and says, fine, I'll sit with the Arabs, then you can have like a, a, um, some kind of uh, you know, a left-wing, left-center government. And Lieberman, if Bibi somehow convinces Lieberman to sit with the ultra-Orthodox by maybe making him deputy prime minister or trying to give him something, like bring him into Likud, just give him something that's huge for Lieberman, maybe says, okay, fine, I'll sit with them. If none of those things happen, then the most likely scenario eventually, I think, is um, that, you know, at the end of the day, Likud has to say, Bibi must step down. Are there any leaders in Likud who mm. are ready or willing or potentially able to do that? Um, so that's a huge question. I mean, it comes back to here. Sometimes, you know, you see like Donald Trump and the Republican Party increasingly afraid to people who don't necessarily support him and privately politicians will say, I know about this guy, but publicly they don't want to walk away from him. So you get the same problem in Likud and also a lot of the old sort of there's a lot of, you know, I'd almost call them like the never-Trumpers of Israel who have mm -hmm. been kind of taken out of the Likud party, people who traditionally were in Likud um, but no longer are. So Bibi has put in place a lot of people who just will serve his interests. Um, but if they have no other choice um, and if the alternative is going back to a third election and if you can cut a deal where, you know, Gantz is prime minister and some kind of joint government, so his 33, 33, with 31 from Likud, led, led by, there's a couple of different people. There's a guy named Gidon Saar, who's the number two in Likud. Israel Katz, who's the current foreign minister. These are Yuli Edelstein, who's the current um, sort of speaker of the Knesset, the Israeli parliament. All of them could take it. And maybe Bibi gets immunity from all prosecution. Uh, and that's the deal. And he steps down, and they do some kind of unity government with Gantz. That's what happens if like Gantz holds out and leaves them no other options, and Lieberman holds out and leaves them no other options, and these politicians all calculate, man, if we go to a third election, it's going to be even worse for us. When you step back from the, the internal dynamics of forming a government or not yeah. being able to form a government, and you, um, and you look at Israel from, you know, just, just from the perspective of the whole region, Israel right now appears to be very weak uh, this is my assessment. Yeah. I'm not an expert. Yeah. You t tell me, how does the rest of the region see Israel? Um, I actually think Israel is increasingly strong. Really? Um, I think Israel, um, militarily, um, it's uh, the regional power, or, or mm -hmm. like the most the most significant military power in the region. It's what it, what its its capabilities. But um, what's the what's the impact of the lack of certainty sure. in this moment on the mm -hmm. the sort of geopolitics of the region? Well, um, the elections have. It matters more for Israeli domestic politics and for like decision making. I think things are are frozen in terms of big social. There's all kinds of social questions, you know, domestic policy. But economically, Israel is still humming. Its per capita GDP at this point is higher than Japan's. Mm -hmm. It's higher than the UK's. Mm -hmm. um, militarily, Israel has struck 1,000 different targets inside Syria, or one no, 200 different targets, like 1,000 basically bombings inside Syria, Iranian targets in the last couple of years without basically taking any kind of significant retaliation. Um, it, you know, if you remember where Israel was, I mean, if you really think back to the founding of the state and the threats that it faced um, to its very existence, 
um, during the first 25 years, um, and that real feeling of threat in Israel, um, maybe some of that feeling still exists, but the reality objectively, if you look back, if you look now, is you know that threat is gone. Israel is there to stay. And the Arab world, I think, increasingly recognizes that too. Um, and I think there's progress there in terms of you know, Arab states being willing to come engage with Israelis, but also I think real limitations unless you make progress with the Palestinians. And still this huge unresolved question with the Palestinians and, and the future of you know, that issue I think is vital for Israel's long-term vibrancy security. But Can you dis discuss that a little bit more? Because uh, heading into this election, it was clear that Netanyahu was um, seeking to annex more of the West Bank and very publicly discussing that in ways mm -hmm. that would completely isolate and disconnect and sort of fracture whatever the future hypothetical Palestinian state might exist. Yeah. Um, how has that played, is that a part of what's happened in this election? A part, I mean, I know that it, it certainly motivated the, the Arab-Israeli vote, mm -hmm. um, but how does Benny Gantz talk about it? Sure, um, so look, let's say we were to have a Gantz government. Um, I don't think everything would fundamentally change in a day. I think there's still a lot of core things where there's a lot of challenges uh, in the, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. I don't think we'd be going back to peace negotiations the next day or anything like that. But I do think things would be different. Um, so what would be the same? The same as Gantz still ran on a pretty center to almost center-right government. And even if he led it, you'd probably have Likud in it, which would also limit his ability to do something serious. Um, and. On top of that, we still have right now dysfunctional Palestinian leadership uh, with Mahmoud Abbas, uh, who I don't think is the guy who's ready to make a big, big step forward and make an agreement at this point. Um, he's kind of geriatric. Uh, he's weak. He's in year 13 of a five-year term. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, uh, you know, so, uh, and at the same time, you also need, I mean, the U.S. has traditionally played a central role as mediator. And right now, the U.S. has no credibility as mediator. And I'm sure we can get into all, mm -hmm. all that later, but I, you know, um, to where the U.S. is and all this. But um, so, I don't think you'd have this jump towards some kind of major progress. But I think a few things would improve. Uh, the first thing that would improve is I think you would see sort of talk of annexation would go by the by the wayside for the moment because annexation I think for Israel is very very dangerous. Um, and dangerous to the Palestinians. If Israel starts taking pieces of the West Bank and saying they are permanently ours, you're really ending the possibility of a two-state solution ever. You're closing off that pathway. Um, and then eventually, you're looking at the reality of a one-state solution. Basically, I view it as a triangle, right? There's the land, Judea mm -hmm. and Samaria, as Israelis call it, the West Bank, or, or religious Israelis call it. There is democracy, you know, one person, one vote. And there is the Jewish nature of the state. Um, you can have two of those three. You can't have all three. And if you take the land, then you're going to have to choose. Is it a Jewish state? In which case, the 40%, almost 50% of Arabs who are living in, the, you know, in this area don't get a vote. Like, what does that mean long term? Or it's a democracy, in which case, if you're annexing this territory, then you're looking at a one state. Binational state. If you already have the Arab Israelis participating in elections and, yeah. and growing in power, yeah. how could you then say, if you were to annex, this yeah. is all hypothetical, sure, obviously, sure. but if you were to annex the West Bank, how would how could you then deny Arab Israeli Arabs living there who are yeah. then Israeli citizens or or you know they 
are residents of the state, how could right. you then deny plausibly deny them the vote? So what? So the, exactly like that. This is the problem, right? I mean, well, what you would do is you would and what the sort of right wingers say is, you know, the West Bank is divided into area A, B, and C, right? Area A is about twenty percent of the territory. Ninety-five percent of the Palestinian population lives there, um, and you would leave that under Palestinian control. Then you'd have area B is kind of joint control. It's another, you know, actually I think they're at 20, I should say area A is 20% of the territory, about 70% of the population. Area B is another 20% of the territory, 25% of the population. And area C is 60% of the territory, but only 5% of the population. So basically C is all the connective tissue of the West Bank, right? It's the area, and C is the area controlled by Israel still, and the Israeli Defense Forces. So what the right wing says is, let's just take area C. Let's just take, you know, all this area, and then we can, the Palestinians can, I don't know what they can have in like areas A and B. It's not a state, but, but they can have autonomy. Um, the problem with that is, it's not like you just have like a nice clean division of area A, B, and C. Area A is 169 different small enclaves and pieces of territory inside area C, and you can't move between them without going through area C, right? So. So you're, now you're saying to the Palestinians, you know, you're gonna, you know, what you want to go from Bethlehem to um, Ramallah, two of the major cities in the West Bank, you're gonna have to go through Israeli territory. So they're not. So this is why the argument breaks down. And I do, I agree with you. I think ultimately, when you talk to Palestinians, especially the next generation, this is increasingly what you hear. You hear, look, I would love. Here's what I want. I want a vote. Uh, I want a passport that allows me to go wherever I want to go. I want jobs. I want opportunity for my kids. Um, and where I'd really love that to have that is Palestine and my, my future state of Palestine. But if that's not possible, like, I'll vote in Israel. That's fine, too. Um, and that's, that seems to me a, a reasonable place for them to be. Um, the challenge with that is, fine, then if you bring all those Palestinians in, you do lose the Jewish nature of the state of Israel. And so that's... That's the, that's the question. That's the core of all of this. Like, what do Israelis want? They can't have all three. Mm -hmm. What does Gantz want? What does Gantz want? I think Gantz, I think Gantz wants a two-state solution. Mm -hmm. um, I think Gantz recognizes this. Um, and he's part of a group of, you know, there's this group. He's not part of it, but he was part of it. Well, more than 200 Israeli, retired Israeli generals. Most of the security establishment in Israel, like former retired who've come out, a group called Commanders for Israel's Security. Um, they've been out there, and really, in many ways, they speak for the security establishment. And they've been out there, uh, and what they've been saying is, you know, we need to preserve the possibility of a two-state solution. So we can't maybe today get there, because we might not have a partner on the other side, and there's too many challenges. But why, we, don't, we, can, we should not be taking steps to make it impossible later. So no annexation. And why don't we go further than that? And um, stop, you know, problematic settlement activity. You know, there's a lot of settlements being built. You don't have to stop all of it, but you can stop the stuff that's really most problematic and is going to threaten any, you know, a viable Palestinian state. And there's also, you know, we talked about Area C. Um, you can take small portions of Area C and give them to the Palestinians and say, you guys have this now. And that would make a huge difference for them economically. And also, you have something like 200,000 Palestinians living in Area C, all of those homes are co under constant threat of Israeli demolition uh, because legally, like they should not have been built, but they were built because you know these people just expand out. That's like normal how populations grow. 
Um, but legally, the settlements shouldn't shouldn't have been right, built exactly, either. exactly. But but settlements don't get demolished, uh, you know, and and Palestinian homes do. So let's mm -hmm. let's change that and let those houses stay. So these are steps that Israel can take. You know, there's steps Israel can take in East Jerusalem. East Jerusalem is a is almost like no man's land. This is Arab East Jerusalem, areas of Jerusalem where you have Arab neighborhoods. Um, Israel doesn't really go in there because you know. It's Palestinian, and like we don't want to manage it. We want to think about it the way we do other parts of the West Bank. But they also don't let the Palestinians go in there, the Palestinian leadership go in there, Palestinian Authority, because because it's um, because they don't want to acknowledge that that might go back to a future Palestinian state. So you haven't had a new playground in East Jerusalem in 25 years. I mean, like there are things that Israel can do unilaterally that are positive in, the, in these spaces. Gaza is another one, humanitarian aid, electricity, water. So I think a lot of stuff that can be done that would just generally improve the situation. I think Gantz can, can really make some progress there. Mm -hmm. You had a question. In your talk of areas A, B, and C, sure. is Gaza figured in this at all? Sure. Well, Gaza is a, a part. It's on the other, other side. So A, B, and C is the way the West Bank is, uh, is divided yes. up. Um, and is based sort of on, on the Oslo Accords um, and Paris Protocol in 1995, I guess Oslo II. Um, it's, b it's been that way. It was supposed to be temporary, and it's become very permanent. Um, Gaza is an entirely almost separate challenge. Um, and I actually spent, I spent time leading a task force last year of Americans really looking at the, deeply at the Gaza problem, because I'll tell you, and I was, you know, I worked at the State Department, I worked on these issues, and we as Americans, um, we always sort of said, we had this theory, um, we're gonna figure it out between Israel and the PLO, right? We're gonna get a deal, and then like, once it happens, like Hamas will have no choice but to come into the fold, and Gaza will miraculously get taken over again by the PA, and, and basically the whole thing was just ignored, right? Um, and so the argument was like, we need a serious thought process on how to have an American policy towards Gaza. And that's one of the other things I'd like to see the US spend more time focusing on. Um, and so what I found in Gaza is I think we got a few challenges. Um, one is you have all these different external players. And they're all going in different directions. You have, you know, you have, well, first of all, you have four internal players. You have Hamas, Palestinian Authority, Israel, and Egypt that together you know, Egypt controls the border, Israel controls some borders, the PA and Hamas are struggling inside. They can't seem to all come to some kind of alignment. And then you have all these external players. Um, the UN is playing a pretty positive role, actually, in, in Gaza, and you know, a guy named Nikolai Mladenov, who's a special envoy on this issue, is remarkably well-trusted by like all sides, former Bulgarian defense minister. Um, you've got Qatar, who like throws money in behind Hamas. You've got Saudi Arabia and the UAE, sometimes supporting the PA, sometimes not. You've got like Turkey messing around. You've got like so many different US, right? And so, and everybody does something different and nothing gets done. So one thing the US can do is come in and play a real leadership role working with Egypt and the UN who are two most effective influential players on the ground just to direct the international community in one direction and say we have a plan, a joint plan, like let's do this together. Um, Egypt and the UN, you guys know the most on the ground. You guys run that. We, the US, will support you from the outside and get all the other guys to at least coordinate how they're approaching this. Um, you can do a lot of immediate things on electricity and water. I mean, Gaza, 
you know, four to eight hours of electricity a day. 97% of the drinking water is not fit for human consumption. Um, you know, so many of these things, uh, you know, there's emergence, you know, 53% unemployment. I mean, it's pretty stunning. Um, and there are all kinds of steps that can be taken immediately, you know, to increase water, to increase electricity. And also, um, one interesting one is you do need, Palestinians need jobs, right? Palestinian, and they can't leave Gaza. Like, imagine if you, you know, Gaza's tiny. It's, it, you know, it's like the size of, I always say, like twice the size of Washington, D.C. So imagine, or yeah, let's apply it to Cleveland, right? Like, if you lived in Shaker Heights, but you were not allowed to, like, go into Cleveland. Like, if you just couldn't connect, you know, take the big suburbs of Cleveland, could not be connected to the city. You separated them. Like, what would happen to those economies? I mean, that's what's happening in Gaza. Traditionally, you know, you've had, you used to have 25,000, 100,000 even Gazans working inside Israel. You need to start doing some of that again. Um, and the Israelis know who these guys are. They can start with, you know, just a few thousand work permits. Um, and there's a lot of support for, for that, actually, including from all the Israeli communities right around Gaza who know these people. And Gazans used to be basically like, you know, used to help all these kibbutzim do farming and things like that. So there's all kinds of steps you can take, at least in the near term, to, um, to address the situation. There's much more complicated long-term political game there where eventually you need to find a way to bring Israel, the Palestinian Authority, and Hamas into some kind of a three-way deal. Um, but like, we're not there yet. Uh, I think we can start with a lot of the, the early stuff first. We have another question from the group. Um, you mentioned the potential of a two-state solution in some form or under discussion. Why not a merger, if you will, of Judea and Samaria, the West Bank, or mm -hmm. parts of it, and Jordan, mm -hmm. which was part of an original deal 80 years ago? Yeah. Because the Jordanians will never go for it. Well, then, why say, you know, the, the Israelis mm -hmm. would never go for it? I mean, you're right. caught between right. two parties that say, I'll never take you, I'll never take you. Mm -hmm. Why concentrate on one side saying, well, you must do something, as opposed to talking to the other side and say, you know. Sure, sure. so, so um, here's the thing is nobody's saying to Israel you must Take the Palestinians well, in. I'm using the word right, 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 right. All the discussions no. of two state or right. you know, or combining, but they never talk about Jordan as right. part of a potential plan. Sure. So, um, but here's, I guess, what I'm getting at. Like, arguing for a two state solution is not saying, "Hey, Palestinians should be integrated into your state," or "Palestinians should be integrated into your state." It's saying Palestinians should be have their own state, right? I mean, that's what, that's, right? That's and who controls, right? But, for 80 years. but who controls that territory? It's not Jordan. It was Jordan. Well, right, it was and the Israel. Empire and then right, <laughs> right. It was, but it isn't today. For 19 years, it was Jordan. Right, it is. It was for 19 years. It was Jordan, but it isn't Jordan today. So who's who is ultimately like? If there's going to be a two-state solution, who ultimately needs to move back? And who ultimately controls the territory right now? Why can't Jordan move up? Why can't Jordan move up? So, um, you know, you can try to make the case for that. The problem with it is that the kingdom of Jordan, like we talked before about how strong Israel is. Like, let me tell you who's not strong. <laughs> Jordan. <laughs> um, right. I mean, Here's like, there, Jordan is, you know, a country that is, you know, 
you know, the king and the East Bankers, the non-Palestinians, are a minority. The majority of the country is already Palestinian. Um, economically, it's a basket case. Um, it's got, and it's actually done remarkable, I mean, you know, what country has taken on more refugees than pretty much any other country from both Iraq and from Syria? Jordan. You know, it's taken on millions of Syrian refugees. It's taken on millions of Iraqi refugees uh, with, a, with very limited capacity. Um, and it survived. And you talk to most Israeli security officials, and they'll tell you, like, we view Jordan's eastern border as almost like our, not western border, Jordan's eastern border with Iraq is almost like our external security border because of how good our relationship is with the Jordanians on security. Um, so, you know, so who is actually, ask yourself strategically who is more capable of withstanding, if you're Israel, like what do you actually prefer? Would you rather be giving the Palestinian territories over to Jordan and destabilizing Jordan? Or are you actually in a stronger position to be able to deal with the problem uh, than asking a weaker country who you still count on to be the one to deal with the problem? So, um, but, you know, so, so this is, I guess, like my counter. Um, but it doesn't, I mean, if we can get to, the other idea that's been out there is like, I don't think Palestinians would necessarily, some Palestinian leadership would mind a confederation with Jordan. Um, Did you say would mind or would not mind? I think Palestinians would be okay with it if you the Jordanians on board with it, but it would have to first be an independent Palestinian state and then discussion of a confederation. Like not, let's put this on Jordan. While we're talking about neighbors, how does Egypt figure into this? Sure. Um, well, Egypt Egypt takes the same attitude on Gaza, and it's even worse because like Egypt is capable of like doing something in Gaza, right? You know, I mean, but Egypt's like want no part of the Gaza situation at all, um, you know, and so it's pretty insistent on not sort of taking responsibility for Gaza. But they do play an important role in Gaza. I mean, look, they do all the negotiations. Like Israel and Hamas negotiate. Let's like be clear about that. They find ways to negotiate. They find ways to keep peace and find avoid things exploding. That's why they don't explode every couple of years. Um, and who's the key mediator and all that? It's Egypt. Um, Egypt is the you know Egypt knows Egypt knows how to squeeze Hamas. Egypt knows how to talk to Hamas. Um, and Egypt knows how to talk to Israel. And Israel cares deeply about Egypt's stability too. And when the whole Arab Spring began and there was all this instability in Egypt, the Israeli response was like forget democracy, like, what we need is a stable Egypt, because that's, like, what really matters for us. And you guys are crazy to even think that you can sort of try to encourage something like this. Um, you know, and, and that's, you know, um, and even now when you sort of talk about it, Egypt's dysfunctionality, all, every Israeli government official will tell you, like, no, 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 no. Like, you know, we need Egypt strong and stable, like, and that is our priority. Um, and I understand that. It's a massive country. I mean, you know, it's 100 million people. And mm -hmm. it's, it's a huge country. Um, it's, you know, there's this big buffer zone in terms of the Sinai, a lot of sand, which mm -hmm. is good strategically, um, gives Israel more space as opposed to the West Bank and Gaza, um, or, or even the, in Jordan, we're much more like right on top of Israel. But, but you know, um, but yeah, this is a, it remains a concern, um, I think. We have been uh, chatting for about 30 minutes yeah. now. You have not mentioned Jared Kushner's name once. <laughs> <laughs> Um, is that indicative of the irrelevance of U.S. foreign policy right now? No. I, well, it's, it, to some extent it is, um, but we haven't gotten to the American view on all this. Uh, can, you know, um, look, where, where are we in terms of U.S. policy on this issue is really like what we're getting at, right? Um, 
And I would say, so right, we've, we have this anticipated Kushner plan at some point, um, or the Trump peace plan. Um, I have some news for you. It probably is not that surprising. Um, in my opinion, like that plan is never going to see the light of day, uh, certainly not before 2020. You know, if the president is reelected, maybe a second term, um, you, you might see the peace plan. Um, but, you know, and here's, here's sort of my take on it. You know, first of all, the administration's policy has been on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict, in my mind, pretty disastrous. Um, it, ever since the, the decision to move the embassy of Jerusalem. Now, I did not think, let's be clear about moving the embassy of Jerusalem. Moving the, embassy, the American embassy of Jerusalem in and of itself is actually something I'm fine with, right? I'm fine with taking steps on the ground that sort of make a two-state reality more likely, not less. And reality is Jerusalem will be Israel's capital in any two-state agreement. And you could have actually said it and done it, but it's a huge political symbol, right? And a big give to the Israelis. So the question is, if you're the mediator, when you do that, what do you give to the Palestinians? Something similar that, again, reaffirms two states. And so I would have liked to have seen, for example, we're going to open a, an American embassy in Jerusalem, and we're going to take the consulate that already exists in Jerusalem that's, that's supposed to represent you know, the U.S. interests to the Palestinians, and we're going to turn that into an embassy as well. And we're going to have two embassies in Jerusalem, one for Israel and one for the future state of Palestine. Like, that would have been fine. Um, but doing this one very one-sided thing for one side and nothing for the other basically triggered this. Palestinians haven't talked to the U.S. government in two years now almost. You know, and What you just said, I'm trying to imagine Netanyahu sure. saying, yeah, that sounds like a great idea. No, he wouldn't. <laughs> exactly. He wouldn't. But, you know, but that's okay. You know, right. That's not our job as the mediators. It's not our job to do things that like, one side loves and the other side hates. It's our job to try to encourage them to move in the right direction. Mm -hmm. um, you know, but, th but then we followed it up. Now we've closed the consulate, so there's no direct political representation to the Palestinians anymore. We used to have, mm -hmm. you know, an embassy that talked to the Israelis and a consulate to talk to the Palestinians. We don't have that anymore. We've cut all of the American aid uh, to the Palestinians, including security assistance, which Israeli officials will tell you is critical to maintaining stability in the West Bank, mm -hmm. um, which is really problematic, and we'll see how that means long term. Um, and and so we've completely cut ourselves off from the Palestinians. And then, you know, you have this plan out there that they've been talking about for two years. Um, and if it ever does see the light of day, I think it will be incredibly biased towards Israel, rejected by the Palestinians day one, and then used as a pretense in Israel to again say, we have no partner, let's go for annexation. Um, but I don't think it will see the light of day uh, because it, it might have seen the light of day if, you know, we had this Israeli election in April if, and afterwards the plan was to put it out. Um, but I look at a couple of indicators. One is um, the U.S. envoy, Jason Greenblatt, right, who, who works with Kushner, uh, just resigned. Greenblatt's been saying for a year, you know, my family's in New York. I want to go home. Like, I'm, I'm sort of had enough of government. I sympathize. These are hard jobs. Um, I'm going to wait till we put the plan out, and then I'm going to resign. Well, he resigned. And to me, it's an indicator of, like, well. The plan's never coming out. Coming, plan's never coming out. And, look, in, in some ways, this isn't all that different than any other administration, right? Like, what are you going to do? You're going to go to the president and say, look, boss, we're going to put out this plan. Even if it's very overwhelmingly sided towards Israel, there'll be things in it that you know, certain elements of Trump's base are not going to like. It's going to be politically controversial. Um, and it's going to be rejected, especially by the Palestinians writ large. So it's going to go nowhere. So you're going to do this big plan, and it's going to be rejected. But it'll be good, because it'll help move the conversation forward. You're going to say, why do I want to spend all this political capital and like make a big new 
steal out of something that's going to be rejected and do it in an election here here in the United States, no, I don't, I'll, I'll, I'll wait. And in that way, he's not different than, he's different than, you know, he's a very unusual president in many ways. <laughs> but in this case, you know, there's a reason, you know, we ended up with a major initiative like at the end of Barack Obama's term, right? John Kerry, Security Council resolutions on settlements, things like that, 2016. Um, George Bush doing Anna Annapolis in 2007 and eight. Bill Clinton putting out the Clinton parameters in late 2000, early 2001. American presidents look at the Israeli-Palestinian conflict and say, wow, like this is a huge headache like and hugely risky and massive political capital, and why do I want to do it until they're at the very end and then they try to do something? So the fact that they keep delaying, I think, is kind of normal and in line with how American presidents have actually dealt with this problem. Sure. Iran and Saudi Arabia, where do they fit in in terms of what the difference would be? I mean, we know how Netanyahu would be, but yeah. what, how would Gantz react um, to their presence and their kind of machinations with each other? Sure, um, and I can also use this as an opportunity to talk a little bit about like what we saw in the last couple of weeks and the American response and sort of what we think going forward. Because I worked, you know, I spent a few years at the Pentagon um, working on Iran, um, and you know, I always say the Pentagon is a department of what if everything goes wrong. So I was doing this like 2009 to 2012 at a time where, you know, the possibility of an Israeli strike was incredibly high, um, and we were spending all of our time looking at scenarios and planning for like what happens if you end up in a war with Iran and how do you avoid that. Um, so I've seen a lot of you know, and that included all these scenarios we're talking about with the Saudis and the Iranians. Um, and so first, just starting from the Israel angle on Gantz, um, look. I think in Israel there's a lot of unity on, on Iran, generally speaking. It's a threat, it's a problem. We want to try to work increasingly with the Arabs to counter it. Um, you know, I, I think there was not a lot of love for the Iran nuclear agreement in Israel, no matter where you were on the political spectrum. Um, but the question is, how do you manage it and deal with it? I don't think you would have seen Gantz insert himself into American politics the way Bibi Netanyahu did, with you know fighting Obama on it every day, going to Congress and doing a speech basically behind the president's back. Gantz wouldn't have done that. Instead, he would have, and what most of the security establishment argued for was, let's go have some serious conversations behind the with the Americans behind closed doors. Like, we're not 100% comfortable with everything in here, so let's figure out how we, like, what, how can the U.S. help ensure that we are secure? How can we, how can we have conversations about lining up where we have disagreements um, and getting, you know, finding ways for the U.S. to provide us with necessary reassurances? Um, and that's a model. Like, this was not the first time the U.S. and Israel have had a disagreement on security. This happens all the time between the U.S. and Israel because we are a superpower surrounded by two oceans, and they are a small country surrounded by a bunch of other countries who are generally not that friendly to them. Um, and in the past, have, many have been outright enemies, um, and some remain outright enemies. And so you're going to have different risk perceptions. You're going to have different perspectives on the world. You have to find a way to bridge it. And so I think those differences would have existed, but without the massive public political confrontation and sort of putting the thumb on the scale for, for one party over the other, um, which has really, I think, done damage to the nature of the bipartisan support that still exists for Israel in the United States, but has taken a huge hit. Um, you know, in terms of, more broadly, Iran, around Saudi, um, just going back to the attacks a couple weeks ago, um, let me tell you one thing. The second I saw those, um, I was like, that was not a ragtag bunch of rebels in Yemen launching 
you know, missiles that hit very accurately at like very sensitive, important Saudi oil infrastructure. Okay, um, that was Iran. Like I am quite confident of that. In fact, I was working on a study at the time based on some of the escalation over the summer, um, looking at different scenarios. We're looking at capabilities, and we looked at the scenario specifically Iran hitting these facilities. And our estimates were they couldn't do as much damage and be as effective as they were, like, with what they did. So the idea that it was the Houthis in Yemen somehow doing this, no, no. This was the Iranians, very clear. Um, so you know, they overperformed. Yes. <laughs> they totally overperformed. Um, Over-expectation. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Or we underestimated. Right. Them. Yeah. Okay. Um, which is, you know, um, yeah, which is disturbing. Um, but you know, it sort of pulls you back to like, what should we, the United States, be doing here? Um, and you sort of like, why, why have we ended up in this spot with Iran, where we're basically, in some ways, on the verge of war? Um, and I would say, look, it starts a year and a half ago. It starts with the decision by the president to walk away from the nuclear agreement. Um, and at the time he walked away, uh, you know, agree, disagree with the nuclear agreement. You know, if you're going to walk away, you better have a plan for what you're going to do afterwards, right? And the administration's plan was, we're just going to sanction them. Like, we're going to maximum pressure. And for a year, uh, Iran's strategy was, well, we're, we're getting sanctioned by the U.S., but what we're going to do is try to separate the U.S. from all the other key world powers, Russia, China, and Europe. Um, and so we're going to stay in the nuclear agreement and continue to abide by it. And we're going to convince these other countries to do business with us, to compensate us, so we can get some economic benefits. Um, but that was what the countries wanted to do, but their companies had no interest in doing that. You know, if you're a company in like France or the UK or Germany, and your choice is invest in Iran and lose access not just to the American market, but to the American financial system that you need for like everything you do, um, it's not much of a choice. So all these companies pull out. After a year, the Iranians are feeling this pressure. Um, and finally, they decide, like, we need to exact the cost. We need to show the Americans that there is a cost for doing this, that this isn't cost-free. We need to show the Gulf states, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, others, that if they're going to try to limit our ability to sell our oil, we're going to mess with their oil. Um, and that's when you start seeing these attacks. You start seeing, you know, first um, mining, you know, uh, attacks in the UAE, then, like, the Gulf of Oman, and, and now these missile attacks. Um, and the administration's response has been utterly incompetent, in my opinion. Um, every one of these, you know, what do you do when a country does something that's purposefully, like, ambiguous, right? First thing you want to do is get everybody to support your position and realize it's Iran's fault. And you do that by gathering all the intelligence, sharing it carefully with everyone, and getting everyone on the same page. Well, instead, this administration consistently just comes out firing within hours with tweets saying it was all Iran without the evidence. And so what does that tell everybody else? Well, I don't know if these guys really are on the up and up. And then you add to that the fact that, I mean, the president has a truth problem on everything from like hurricane you know, routes to, to like voter fraud conspiracies. And like that matters too in international relations. When, when you're just out there lying every day, like now you need the world to believe you on something, and nobody believes you. Um, and on top of that, you have all these countries who usually would align with us against Iran going, well, I don't, if we align with the Americans, like, what are they going to do the next day? We have no idea what they're going to do the next day. We have no idea what this president's going to do the next day. So you haven't been able to build any kind of international coalition. 
And then you make these even worse because every time the Iranians do something, the president comes out smoking hot on Twitter. Like there's going to be like, you know, was like we're locked and loaded, right? That was the term this last time, you know, and before that something else. And then he doesn't do anything. So the message to the Iranians is he's all talk, you know, but he's not going to actually do anything. There are no consequences. Look, compare that to what the Israelis have done in Syria in the last couple of years. Um, 2,000 1, targets have mysteriously gone boom, but you never hear the Israelis talk about it. And because they don't talk about it, the Iranians don't feel the need to respond very publicly. So we're taking away these options. I would like to see like something. Ha I wouldn't mind if something mysteriously happened inside of Iran, if something mysteriously went boom. Um, nobody knew exactly who it was, but a quiet message was sent. This was the US. This is because Iran, you're going too far. It's time to pull back. Like, I know there's some objections to that. It could be risky. But I just, you know, having dealt with them in the Pentagon for a number of years, like they sometimes like a little bit of a little little tiny bit of force with a very clear message from the United States, like does a lot more to pull the Iranians back than, you know, a lot of huffing and puffing when they're clearly taking steps like this. If the this happens without repercussions, the the if you're correct, and the and Iran is responsible for those attacks on the Saudi oil facilities, happens without repercussions. What's Iran's next move? Uh, more. I mean, continued. You know, wait a couple months, see how things go. Something else mysteriously happens. You know, in uh, Saudi or in Israel. I doubt Israel. Right now, they're trying to keep Israel out of it. I think uh, on this front. Um, because their, their beef is less with the Israelis on this issue than it is with the Saudis. And they also think, I mean, I think they know that the two things. One is they don't necessarily have the capability to do the same thing in Israel that they do in Saudi, right? I mean, they have Hezbollah, who you know, is an Iranian proxy, but also has their own political concerns in terms of Hezbollah doesn't want a massive war uh, right now, and Israel doesn't want a massive war. And if Israel and Hezbollah get into a massive war, now it'll be a disaster for Lebanon and a disaster for Israel. So I think everybody sort of prefers to avoid that option. The Iranians, you know, they like to push, 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 but they don't want to push too far. Um, and so, you know, where their real target is right now is, and they also know the Israelis will fight back. They, they don't think the Gulf states will fight back, and they seem pretty convinced the Americans won't fight back. So, like, why, why, why poke the Israelis who they know will fight back? So I would, you know, sooner see continued targeting um, in the Gulf. I think they'll try to, the one thing I hope they do avoid, both because I think it would be, it could lead to a major conflict, um, and because I think they're smart enough to realize not, and just because, you know, is targeting Americans, targeting Americans in a place like Iraq, for example. Thus far, they've avoided that. Mm -hmm. um, so, but if they continue to just target the Gulf, that's like a winner for them. Mm -hmm. Michael. Yeah, I'm a little concerned. American politicians and national security experts uh, from all uh, you know, sides of the political spectrum uh, talk about the Middle East uh, uh, without reference to the real dangers to Israel. So we, we go for one, you know, we, we repeat that the United Nations Command, we formed a U.S. coalition, 38 you know, you know, missiles attacked Israel. We, you know, we attacked Iraq with oil and concerns of Israel's security. But arguably, Israel doesn't want just land and democracy in the Jewish state, but they also want next year in Jerusalem mm -hmm. peace and security mm -hmm. and justice. So in other words, Israel needs peace and 
I'm very concerned about the dangers of war at this point. We underestimated Iran's capacity and you know to uh, drive a nuclear attack on its own base, perhaps drone attacks on its own um, on Saudi Arabia. And from my reading of the press in Israel, there's a severe underestimate of the risk of Hezbollah's guided missiles. I mean, they're a relative country to Iron Dome. You talked about how strong Israel is, and clearly Israel needs food and security. But what can American foreign policy do? to uh, not risk war in the Middle East and not risk uh, Israel's security as we pursue our, what we perceive to be our national interest in terms of oil and you know, our alliance with Saudi Arabia. Is, isn't there a danger that Israel's security will be sacrificed by American politicians and security experts who sort of you know, are willing to take that next step towards war? So um, I also want to avoid war. I think war is not the, a major war with Iran is not the outcome anybody wants. I wrote actually a long piece for foreign affairs uh, on what war with Iran looks like. Um, and, you know, it's pretty catastrophic. I mean, I think that the end of the day, uh, it's worse for Iran than it is the United States because we are a superpower, but it's just terrible for us, terrible for them, terrible for everybody else, including Israel, because in that major conflict, yes, like Hezbollah launches all those missiles. Iron Dome can only do so much. You can overwhelm the system. Um, and so the question is, how do you stop it? Um, and so my view is on the best way to stop it um, is a couple of things. One, um, I think you need serious engagement and negotiations and, and lines of communications with Iran, lines of communication that used to exist and don't really exist today. Um, uh, you know, and so uh, and you had them during the Obama administration. Here's, I'll give you an example, right? In 2016, in early 2016, an American ship with sailors wandered into Iranian territory, um, was taken for a number of hours uh, uh, prisoner by the IRGC Navy, um, and Kerry was on the phone with Zarif constantly, right? The, you know, with the, the Iranian foreign minister. Uh, and in hours, they negotiated a release um, and avoided what would have been a major international standoff. Um, and it's because channels of dialogue existed. You had a secretary of state and an Iranian foreign minister who had each other's phone numbers. Um, and that matters a lot. Um, and so, you know, Trump seems to want to talk to Rouhani now. Um, I think that's a good thing. I, I, I'm not against them meeting. I think the big challenge is the Iranians don't really want to meet right now, not the Americans, actually. The Iranians don't want to meet because they say Trump walked away from the nuclear deal and we'd be rewarding him. And at the same time, um, you know, we need to have some understanding that if we meet, like we're going to get something out of this. We're not, we're not the North Koreans. You know, we've met, we, we sit on the world stage plenty. And we have in all these negotiations, so we don't need a meeting with the president to somehow validate us the way the North Koreans do. If anything, it's like politically toxic for us at home, given where, you know, how Iranians view Trump um, and Iran. You know, Iran's an authoritarian regime, but there's different ranges of authoritarian regimes, and it's not the kind of control over their society that North Korea does. Um, so I think you need engagement, but I do also think you need to be clear about like certain lines that you draw, um, you know, in order to create deterrence. Um, and I think that this is part of the challenge. I mean, what the Israelis, at least, thus far have demonstrated in Syria is like you can do some of that. You can you know, hit Iran and force it to pull back and send signals without getting into a major conflict. Um, you can take some risk. 
Now, you know, that could all like blow up tomorrow, right? I mean, it could, it's true, but it also hasn't blown up in two years. Um, so you can like look at it either way. And so um, it's very complicated. I don't buy the idea that like you have one little thing happens and then suddenly we just go all the way up and like we're in a massive war. Um, and so I do think you, you can't look at the risk of just that and it being either zero or 100 in every decision that you make. But I also don't think that you should discount it. It's really, it's, 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 a, it's a very nuanced and complicated game. And f like, game is the wrong word for it. It's a nuanced and complicated sort of balancing act that you're trying to, to, to pull off. Um, you know, but you know, at the same time, um, and I have no faith in this administration to be able to pull it off because they've shown no capacity to pull it off so far. And the one thing that's really kept us out of conflicts thus far is you know, the president's calculation that like it would be bad for him politically. Um, and you know, if he's under pressure and things are going bad and the Iranians push too far and embarrass him and he's in the middle of an impeachment hearing or something like that, and in an election year, like you could see that calculus change. Um, just sort of looking forward um, to 2020, I mean, yourself and other yeah. um, Obama administration alums at think tanks working on other things, are you starting, um, are, are folks starting to join campaigns? Are there any of the, I guess, many, still many candidates mm -hmm. in the Democratic side that are um, pulling together sort of national security teams? Sort of what's, what, what insights do you have and sort of how that um, process is? Sure. Um, so, um, yeah, I think basically, as is the case every four years, um, you know, you do have like foreign policy experts kind of dividing up um, along different lines. Um, I have my own biases. I'm not going to get into that now, or my own views on this. I'm not going to get into that right now. Um, but I'll tell you sort of more more broadly. Um, you know. Um, uh, basically, yes. Every every one of the sort of major, I think, if you were to define the major candidates as the five, has you know people around them um, who are thinking this through. Um, you know, I think the good news is, and then you, you know, if the five are you know Warren, Biden, Buttigieg, Harris, uh, and Bernie, um, and then you know you've also got a lot of other you know I think great serious candidates who unfortunately haven't taken off this far, but who knows, but I think a number of them would be incredibly capable as well. Um, their teams are obviously smaller. Um, but you know, I do think that there's been, first of all, the election is ultimately a domestic policy election, much more than a foreign policy election. Um, second of all, there's a lot of unity, I think, inside the Democratic Party right now and the urgency of you know, this moment in terms of the president defeating Donald Trump. And so I, you know, the, everything has been pretty friendly thus far. Who knows? That might change the closer you get to, um, you know, Iowa and New Hampshire and things like that. Those things tend to happen. But it already feels very different. As a guy who worked on, like, Obama in 2007 and 2008, like, uh, this feels very different. Um, there's much less, there's not much competition. People are pretty friendly as a whole. You know, I haven't really seen it infect, um, like, relationships between the various, like at least in the foreign policy community uh, at all. Um, you know, and so I have friends who are working on pretty much all of what I would call those five major campaigns. Um, you know, I will say as a party, um, when it comes to Israel, 
because this is a pretty interesting issue. Um, thus far, uh, Israel has not played that much inside the primary. Um, I do think, you know, th there's this challenge for, you know, you have the American Jewish community that's had a traditional position on these issues. You have progressive activists who had a traditional sort of who, who younger and have a different perspective on the Palestinian conflict, um, the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. Um, Bibi has really, with his very bad relationship with Obama and his very, like, over-the-top relationship with Trump, like, turned this into a partisan issue. And it's like he's had help from Obama and from Trump for sure and others. But like ultimately, Bibi is the prime minister of Israel, and it's his job to protect Israel's security. And for Israel, there's an interest, I think, in bipartisan support. So I put this on him more than anybody else because it was his responsibility to not let this all happen. Uh, and he's exacerbated it in a very dramatic way. Um, and so I, I think where Democrats are coming to on, on you know, the question of Israel and going into 2020 is, you know, I think what you'll hear is a nuanced message that's a little different than the past, but is not fundamentally different. It'll start with, you know, A, you know, we s support a two-state solution uh, and ending the occupation. Um, uh, and I think using that word occupation matters a lot to the progressive left. Um, but the reality is, you know, the Israeli Defense Forces call it an occupation. And that's what it's called under international law. And that's what it is. And that's what it was called for years. And it's only been the last few years where people have tried to extract the word occupation from, from the language um, as they move towards trying to, to, to push for annexation. So I don't think, to me, as a foreign policy national security analyst, it's like totally normal, right? I mean, um, to, to use that word. It, it's just, you know, it's simple. So one is support for two-state solution ending the occupation. Two reaffirming you know, our commitment to Israel's security and the, the relationship and the nature of the relationship, which is strong and should remain strong. It's in America's interests. It goes beyond security. It's about you know, common values. It's about um, economic benefits. It's all of these things together. Um, and I think Democrats will all emphasize that. Um, three is then saying, um, you know, supporting you know, Israel does not mean supporting Bibi Netanyahu in a far-right government in the same way that supporting America does not mean supporting Donald Trump. I can support the relationship I can, without agreeing with the government, and that's okay. And I think that's good because I think that the, the more you can put out this on Netanyahu, who eventually is one person as opposed to on the state, I think that's healthier for the long-term relationship. And four, and this I think is also really important, um, you know, it's not about walking away from Israel in any way, in my opinion, but it is about talking more about the Palestinians and the fact that they exist, and the fact that this is a problem, and that they have rights, and they deserve those rights. Um, you know, and traditionally, where American Jews, where, where Democrats have long been on this issue, and frankly, a lot of American Jews has been to say, you know, especially progressive Jews, which is the majority of the, you know, American Jews, has been to say, you know, I love Israel for all these different reasons, um, and, I'm, and I'm, I'm progressive, so I support the two-state solution. Without ever saying, you know, without ever using the word Palestinian. So let's put that in our, in our, in our like, political lexicon. Let's say, you know, Palestinians have a right to dignity. Palestinians have a right to a vote. Palestinians have a right for justice. You know, they have a right to their own state. Like, and they are living in very difficult conditions right now. Um, and we should be doing something about that. So it's okay to affirm your support for Israel and all those things while still like making the point that like there's a problem here. Um, and I think that that's where like Democrats will be um, and where the dialogue is moving. Um, and I think that's, 
healthy. I think that's where, that's not where, let's say, dialogue on campus might be. Um, and it's not where dialogue, um, you know, in, in some elements of the American Jewish community might be. But I do think that as a whole, like this is sort of the, the, the center of the party is moving. One final question. Um, so, um, I don't know the exact percentage that's wasted, but I do know the threshold for getting in to, uh, the parliament, if I'm not mistaken, it's four seats out of 120, it's like two and a half percent, three percent is like three, three is, uh, is roughly what you're talking about in terms of, so if you get below that, then you don't make, I think it's two and a half. If you don't, you, you if you're below two and a half, you don't get any seats. Um, I, I do think most of those small parties, none of them even like sort of go above 1%. So you're still talking about the overwhelming majority and the population knows it, right? You, people don't like to waste their votes. So the overwhelming majority does end up with, you know, like in the 90th, in the 90s percentile, usually there's one or two parties that manage to get about 1% uh, of these small parties uh, and those votes are lost and basically everything else is recalculated with the votes that count. Um, but in some ways, I'd argue that you know Israel's problem is not that the threshold is too low. It's the I mean, it's not that the threshold is too high. It's that it's too low. In most uh, parliamentary democracies, the threshold is higher than it is in Israel. It was recently raised, and when the threshold goes higher, then you see more like you know four or five parties as opposed to which is better because you know there's a balancing act to be played there. But you don't want the small parties acting as kingmakers. I mean, Lieberman with eight out of 120 seats is basically like dictating everything. That's kind of nuts, right? Um, and so, you know, you look at places like France and Germany and other places like that, and for the most part you have a center right, a center left, a far left and a far right. And like that's, you know, and maybe something else. Um, you know, so um, I, there's been all kinds of different ideas about how to solve this for a while. There was, you know, a couple of elections, they voted for prime ministers apart from parliament the Knesset, um, you know, if you had, I don't think two stages would necessarily do it because two stages would only be if you were doing, I don't think that's really for parliamentary, that's more if you're like doing a presidential type system, right? You let everybody run and then you take the top two in the runoff. Um, uh, I don't know, um, if nobody gets to 50%. Um, so yeah, there's all kinds of different options for, for fixing this, but I do think it's, um, it's a problem, and if it, and if these parties were bigger, if they were the threshold, I mean, you already saw it. They raised the threshold from you know, a few years ago and forced all the Arab parties instead of separating to all come together, and that was healthy. It's good. I like you. you should, I'd like to see more consolidation. So you really, it would make the system much more manageable. Elon Goldenberg is the senior fellow and director of the Middle East Security Program for the Center for a New American Security. I want to thank you very much. I want to thank our partners at Cleveland Council on World Affairs and the uh, Jewish Federation of Cleveland. I want to thank all of you for joining us. This breakfast briefing forum is adjourned.
it's fun. What's the effect of the um, 